This is Monday Morning QB, September 12th, 2022. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Today on the show, a new report on the Oath Keepers and their role in public life. This is not a fringe group. It did not stay outside the realms of civil society, outside the realms of civic institutions like the police, the military, and also with office holders. Plus, American University staff win a union, remembering Emmett Till, Bernard Shaw, and Barbara Ehrenreich. And this show's four-year anniversary. All that and more. Stay with us. A new report reveals that hundreds of law enforcement officers, elected officials, and U.S. military personnel appeared on the membership rolls of the far-right group The Oath Keepers. The data raises fresh concerns about the extent to which extremism is making inroads among those whose job it is to defend democratic norms and enforce the rule of law. Sue Goodwin has more. Last September, a nonprofit journalism group called Distributed Denial of Secrets published a leaked Oath Keepers membership list. The list contained more than 38,000 names. Ever concerned about the influence of the far right on public life, the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism cross-referenced the membership list with information found in public databases. Last week, they released a report on their findings. To find out more about what we are learning from that report, we spoke with Heidi Byrick, co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. You know, frankly, the Oath Keepers membership list shows that the group has dipped further into the mainstream than probably a lot of us thought it had. You know, this is not a fringe group. It did not stay outside the realms of civil society, outside the realms of civic institutions like the police, the military, and also with office holders. Heidi Byrick has been following the influence of anti-government extremism as espoused by the Oath Keepers for decades. And she says that as we learn more about how deeply it has infiltrated our civic institutions, the implications are dire. To begin with, the new report identified more than 370 people it believes currently work in law enforcement agencies including as police chiefs and sheriffs. Frankly, nobody should be serving in law enforcement who's a member of a group whose leadership is on trial for, you know, seditious conspiracy related to January 6th. These are people that we can't be sure that they're going to uphold the letter of the law as police officers because one of the things about the Oath Keepers is its membership, you know, declares itself having the right to decide what is something I need to obey and what is something I... I don't need to obey. We don't know ultimately um, how they might treat various communities, including communities of color. So this is just a dangerous situation. And, and given a lot of people in the Oath Keepers have called for things like civil war and revolution, I'm not sure that the state should be arming them. And I don't think people like this should be in any kind of position of authority, especially with a badge and a gun. When it comes to the military, in its review of the Oath Keepers database, the Anti-Defamation League identified 117 individuals who they believe currently serve in the U.S. military, an additional 11 people who serve in the reserves, and 31 individuals who hold civilian positions or are military contractors. Heidi Byrick says 
this kind of presence must be confronted and acted on. Well, once again, nobody who's in a group whose leadership is on trial for conspiracy, basically to, to plot a coup on January 6th and over to a free and fair election, nobody like that should be serving in the armed forces, which is supposed to be loyal to the Constitution and to follow the commander-in-chief. This is a group that has spread election lies. You have to wonder about these people who are active duty if they believe that the election was fair and that Joe Biden is their commander-in-chief. And most, But most importantly, frankly, we don't need to be training people with these extremist beliefs in how to build bombs, how to shoot weapons, how to engage in tactical formations, which frankly is exactly what we saw out of the Oath Keepers on January 6th. Those were relatively skilled people from that group who stormed the Capitol. They did it in a disciplined military manner. And on another front, there is, of course, politics. The ADL report identified 81 individuals across the country who are currently holding or running for public office in 2022. The gamut runs from mayors, town council members, and school board members to state representatives and senators. Further evidence, says Heidi Byrick, that the political appeal of the Oath Keepers is hardly on the wane. The Oath Keepers are definitely not seeing their work diminished by the fallout from January 6th. The popularity of the group it continues to be there. That's as evidenced by these elected officials and candidates who are connected to it. Um, in fact, I don't think we would have seen these numbers of people connected to a group like the Oath Keepers when the group started out in 2008, 2009. And that popularity among uh, candidates and elected officials is also extremely disturbing because this group has a twisted view of the Constitution and the protections that it affords. And, you know, these people are, are not they're not going to follow an oath of office to an oath to the constitution because that's not what they believe. They believe they decide on their own oaths. And I also find that quite frightening. It's that kind of fear that led Heidi Byrick along with Wendy Villa to co-found the global project against hate and extremism in 2020 as a vehicle to counter the gains being made by far right extremism movements. And as she explains, it was a necessary decision. We don't have any choice but to counter this kind of extremism. Uh, not only does it contribute to domestic terrorism, the U.S. having the highest hate crime uh, numbers ever, frankly, but it's also poisoning our ability to deal with all kinds of other issues, whether that's climate change, racial justice, and so on. So these far-right movements have got to be countered and pushed back. They're just, and they're also endangering democracy. Uh, these are groups who are involved in election denialism. They spread lies about the 2020 election, and they're spreading lies right now about um, the free and fair electoral system that we have in the United States and their intent on undermining the trust of the public in this. Uh, that includes groups like the Oath Keepers. They didn't go into the Capitol on January 6th for the heck of it. They were there to stop um, Biden's election being certified. And if we want to protect our democracy, we, this is another reason why we have to push back against this kind of extremism. At the website for the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, you can see the ways they are pushing back. And one of the strategies is to influence policymakers. 
we have spent a considerable amount of time since we started the Global Project almost uh, three years ago trying to advise government officials, especially at the federal level, about the seriousness of the threat from white nationalist groups and from other kinds of extremists, and also to propose various things that could be done, whether that is increasing the resources for federal law enforcement to um, counter this threat, something that has been happening in the last two years, talking with members of the National Security Council about the nature of the threat and what can be done. We also spend a lot of time working with the tech companies, basically complaining to the tech companies about their proliferation of this material and the need to get it down so that we don't keep radicalizing young people into neo-Nazism and other types of extremism. The ADL acknowledges that some of the names on the leaked membership list may belong to people who have left the Oath Keepers since the data on membership was first released, perhaps after becoming alienated from the group over its key role in the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. But the ADL also says it is important to remember that the Oath Keepers have espoused extremism since their founding, and this fact was not enough to deter these individuals from signing up. So what then is the appeal of the Oath Keepers as it continues to attract new members? Well, you know, one thing that the Oath Keepers has done is sort of hijack patriotic symbols. So so I think some people have joined the group over the years without fully understanding the nature of its beliefs, right? They present themselves as pro-Constitution, American patriots, you know, believers in American history. You know, they use emblems from the Revolutionary War. In other words, they try to tap into deep American historical narratives. And for a lot of people, especially on the right, who might be a little more conservative in their beliefs, they may just think that they're getting involved in, in a normal old, you know, kind of like a patriotic Elks club or something along those lines. Um, however, over time, more about the group has come out, and so, especially post-January 6th. So you have to wonder about the people who are involved in this organization now. They can't possibly um, just be fooled by emblems of the flag and belief in the Constitution. And that's actually much more worrying than the status of the Oath Keepers, say, back in 2009 or 2010. So given that, what gives Heidi Byrick the confidence that extremism can be effectively challenged? Well, I mean, I have to admit, sometimes it's hard to have that hope. I've been tracking extremism for more than 20 years, uh, going back to my time at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. What I hope is that January 6th and some other things that have happened, like the attack um, on, that killed uh, black people in the Buffalo grocery store, that people are waking up to the threat and will sort of, you know, vote to counter it in coming elections. That, that's, that's what I'm hoping for. And if you are interested in being more active on this issue, here's what Heidi Byrick suggests. Yeah, if if you're interested in doing something about this, certainly um, have a look at our website, globalextremism.org. But I think the most important thing is to actually tackle things in your locality. Stand with hate crime victims. Work with your community to be a hate-free community. Welcome immigrants. Let your elected officials know how you feel about these issues. That's, that is all extremely important and can make life much, much better uh, for people in your community. 
Heidi Byrick, co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Once again, their website is globalextremism.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Late last month, a group of over 500 staffers at American University reached a tentative agreement with campus leadership on significant wage increases and other material benefits. The tentative contract comes about two years after the union first won recognition and began bargaining, and follows an intense five-day strike that culminated with a large student-organized walkout from the convocation ceremony. The chief goal for the staff union was to improve conditions to reduce workplace turnover, which would in turn improve stability for students reliant on campus services. The tentative contract still has to be ratified by union rank and file, but already represents a massive victory in the face of what the union called the university's bad faith bargaining. Rachel Feinstein is a program coordinator at the American University Law School and is a member of the AU Academic Affairs Staff Union. She says staff support for the contract campaign spiked when the university announced that it would not dole out expected merit pay increases, prompting anger and concern among staff. That was when people started paying attention. And that's when we started building our power. I think one of the other big reasons is that American University decided to hire outside counsel from Jackson Lewis, which is a notorious union-busting law firm. And instead of instead of making the decision to work with us to create a better environment for not only their staff, but their students, they decided to fight us on it. And I am a, personally believe that we would have all come out better, the university and the staff, had the university just decided to work with us instead of fighting us on it. But I think that's kind of the two reason why it took so long. Now, to be fair, as organizers and our negotiator at SEIU have told us a number of times, I think first contracts generally take time um, longer than than normal. So I don't want to fully say that like, this would have been done in six weeks, right? If AU had just worked with us, because I also very much don't think that's the case, right? But I do think that it have taken as long as it did had we've been able to organize our members better um, and AU not fought us in the way that they did throughout this process. I want to talk about the strike itself. It's, I mean, striking is clearly a high reward action. I mean, it it caused this win to happen here, but it's also Mm -hmm. high risk. Can you talk about what went into this decision to, to go on strike in the first place? And what was the planning that went into ensuring that members were supported throughout the strike? Yeah, so I think we hit a point in our bargaining where really all that was left were the financial matters. And we had submitted a number of proposals um, on various financial related topics. And you just kept shutting them down and shutting them down and shutting them down and not even wanting to talk to us about it. Um, And I think a lot of our members over the summer 
made the decision that if there was no movement by the beginning of the school year, that we would go on strike because that's, that's it, right? It's, it's either we had hit that point where we either go on strike or this gets dragged out and dragged out and dragged out and nothing changes. And the other fear is that it gets dragged out so long that our unit members get sick and tired of waiting and vote to decertify, right? Which was very much something we didn't want to see happen. Um, And we notified AU, we gave them two weeks notice, we said, our members have authorized a strike starting during welcome week slash the first week of classes at the law school. And we on our last bargaining session before the strike, which I believe was the Thursday, we told American University that we were available over the weekend throughout the weekend, up until 8am on Monday morning to keep bargaining. And they politely declined. Um, they walked away from the bargaining table and allowed us to go on strike. As far as supporting um, our members, I know one of the big things that people were nervous about, especially when you make no money, is losing week of pay, right? And like that was kind of, I think, the big hurdle that we needed to jump over. I think people were scared for sure, but people can be talked off ledges. You can explain that retaliation is not an option you are protected both under our right to strike as part of the bargaining process and on top of that we had submitted or SEIU had submitted on our behalf an unfair labor practices charge because of AU's refusal to give us our merit increases which we had received in every previous year and through our own work and through the Incredible support, like huge shout out to SCIU's International Union and other locals. We managed to create a strike fund. So I think SCIU's internal rules are $50 a day. SCIU is matching part of that through funds they've collected internally. And, you know, we made it work for our members because we wanted to make sure that everybody that wanted to be out there could be. And while $50 a day, isn't huge. I think it's enough for a lot of us to kind of tamp down a little bit of the financial insecurity of losing an entire week's worth of pay. So that that was a big, a big triumph on our end was making sure that we got that pot of money set up for our people. I think the last decade or so of labor organizing has shown us, if we didn't know it already, that unions win most when they're joined in community right when and i think i think back to like the chicago teachers union strike back in 2012 having support from from parents from other students from other unions in the city really kind of pushed that campaign over the edge and i'm kind of curious how that played out in the au context what was the kind of support that you got from students and other staff other campus community members for the strike and and for the contract yeah i mean i think we had support from every community at AU except for administration. Um, We had support from faculty. We had vocal support from students. The law school's student government organization, um, the Student Bar Association, passed a formal resolution in support of us. I know a lot of supervisors supported us as well, even though they couldn't do so publicly, of course. But I heard from a lot of my members that their supervisors were like, give them hell. 
And that's, that's huge, right? Like knowing that your boss supports you is also kind of a big tension relief, I think as well, and makes you less afraid to go on strike in the first place. Um, Because you know that, that your direct supervisor is supporting you or at minimum won't, won't attempt to retaliate against you. And then obviously like the student support on main campus was outrageous um, it was a slow start because move-in wasn't really until Wednesday. And on Tuesday, we wandered around campus and we did pick up a handful of students here and there while we were kind of doing our tour through tour of main campus, as we called it. Um, during move-in, we got a ton of conversations with parents and students while they were moving in. And I obviously like there were people that were frustrated, don't get me wrong, but the vast majority of individuals that we communicated with were hugely supportive of us. The same thing happened on Thursday after we delayed move in so much that they had to stretch it out over a second day. And then obviously on Friday, when the students walked out of convocation was unlike anything I'd ever seen. We knew the students were kind of organizing a little bit. We had been notified of that, but this was beyond anything I could have even expected. I am not a crier, but I stood there in the tunnel outside of Bender Arena and just sobbed. And I hugged my the other unit members around me that had been involved in the you know in making this this possible and we just stood there and sobbed and shook and tried to like scream and give support. And not only did the students leave convocation, they didn't leave the area. They joined us and they picked up signs and they led chants and they spoke and they were with us for most of the day while we finally went back to the table Friday afternoon with the administration. And that in and of itself, I think was the real thing that got them to concede, I think, in ways that they would not have otherwise. But that was the single most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen and made the entire exhausting week worth it, every minute of it. That's Rachel Feinstein, program coordinator at the AU Law School and a member of the AU Academic Affairs Staff Union. To learn more, follow the union on Twitter at AUStaffUnion or visit SEIU500.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Hey, this is Latrice Vincent, co-host and producer for Voices with Vision, which airs every Tuesday at 9 a.m. The misleadership of the world keeps the people under their thumb by bombarding us with half-truths, misinformation, and straight-up lies, and by blocking media space for the rest of us. But their greatest weakness is the lies they tell, and the greatest strength of the people is the truth, which is on our side. It is often said that one truth can crush a thousand lies. There is no better reason than that for you to support WPFW, a people-centered, truth-telling media that keeps you engaged, informed, and interconnected. Support WPFW today by going to wpfwdc.org slash donate. That's wpfwdc.org forward slash donate.
WPFW, building a better world one broadcast at a time. The Till Trilogy is a three-part play that will reflect on the life, death, and legacy of Emmett Till on the stage of Mosaic Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. Its debut comes during a year when other efforts are named in Till's honor, including a new alert system to inform activists of hate and racial crimes and a new law signed onto by President Biden. Here's more from reporter Asia Beckham. In August, a grand jury in Mississippi decided to not indict Carolyn Bryant Doham, a white woman whose accusations nearly 70 years ago fueled the lynching of Emmett Till due to insufficient evidence on charges of kidnapping and manslaughter. However, a playwright in D.C. is remembering the narrative as told by Emmett's close loved ones. The Till Trilogy, a three-part play presented at the Mosaic Theater Company in Washington, D.C., will reflect on the life, death, and legacy of Emmett Till. The theatrical presentation is one of the recent efforts to remember the racially motivated murder of Emmett Till, which sparked the civil rights movement and created access for Black Americans to experience unprecedented social opportunities and legal protections. With an opening date set for October 4th, the Till Trilogy will open its curtains just months after another effort called the Emma Till Alert System emerged to create awareness about hate crimes and racist incidents in the area. The new system will send an email or a text alert to nearly 200 Black leaders across Maryland about any credible hate crimes or racist incidents in the state to increase accountability. Also, in March, President Joe Biden signed the law, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, that made lynching a federal hate crime. The Till Trilogy play seeks to focus on the past, present, and future impacts of Emmett Till's experience by paying homage on stage in D.C. this fall. First, we spoke to the director at the Mosaic Theater. My name is Reg Douglas, and I'm the artistic director at Mosaic Theater in D.C., and I feel so honored and blessed to be able to do this work. I'm so excited to be producing the Till Trilogy by Aoife Baeza and directed by the brilliant Talvin Wilkes. You know, we believe that theater uh, should allow us to look back and reckon with where we've been, but also give us a chance to reflect on where we are right now as a community, as a society. And ideally, because theater is an active sport, it inspires conversation in the audience and makes us think differently about our neighbor and ourselves. And that's exactly what the Till Trilogy does. It is three plays. Uh, you can watch each of them on their own, The Ballad of Emmett Till, Benevolence, or the world premiere that summer in Sumner. All three of these plays on their own and collectively speak that kind of truth to power. They allow us to wrestle and reckon with our history of racial injustice, uh, sparked by the life and death and legacy of Emmett Till, whose murder, of course, uh, sparked the civil rights movement. But that is an ongoing conversation. I believe that that history is yet alive, good and bad. And so we are producing these plays as a reflection of where we've been, but even more so a calling, a call to action, to think about who we are today as a society and what justice could mean and should mean for all of us as we move ahead. So this is the kind of work that really exemplifies Mosaic Theater's mission and to do it with such brilliant artists like Aoife Talvin, this amazing cast in such a dynamic theatrical way, this is a dream come true. Next, we spoke with a playwright uh, my name is Ifa Bayesa. I'm a playwright and 
uh, also a novelist. Of course, my main opus, one I've been working on for a number of years, is the Till Trilogy, which is telling this Central American story of the making of modern America uh, from the vantage point of the African-American struggle. Uh, that's the Till Trilogy. And I'm so delighted that uh, Mosaic Theater is is going to be able to produce the work in full with all three plays representing this saga this fall. Aoife, why right. decide to put the play on stage now? In particular, in this time, this perilous time that we're in, some of the elements of repression, voter suppression, the peril to young black lives and desire to erase or minimize the struggle of black people historically in America. Those elements are a growing aspect of our society right now. And so even as I think of this play, as think of this group of plays as a story that is timeless, the timeless themes of, of a, a boy transition to manhood, of a mother trying to defend the honor of her child, and uh, people struggling to be free. Those are timeless stories. The Till Trilogy reminds people of not only the past, but uh, a reawakening uh, commitment and passion that we very much need today. Just briefly, like, tell us, like, what can we expect in each part of the trilogy? Certainly, certainly. Well, the production runs from October 4th until November 20th. And it is three distinct plays looking at this saga from different vantage points. Uh, the Ballad of Emmett Till, which is the first play, is the story of the boy, the journey of the boy who goes on a summer quest to Mississippi for life, liberty, and happiness. And uh, his journey changes the course of a nation. But it is the, the story of the, the fullness of life of this boy becoming a man at the center of the saga that bears his name. Then the middle play is entitled That Summer in Sumner, and it will be a world premiere. And it is the story of the trial of his killers. But it's also the story of the reporters who come down to cover the trial. It is a celebration of the black press and when the black press was at its height and who were at the forefront of the investigation to get to truth. It is also the story of the witnesses, of course, Emmett's family, his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, and his uncle who took the stand and also a young man, uh, a sharecropper who was one of the witnesses who uh, risked his life to come forward and testify. Then benevolence is about the impact of this experience on the Delta, uh, on the white South, and essentially on America of the 1950s, which was still very much segregated. And it's the, the exploration of two couples, one white, one black, who are struggling to keep their love in an environment that, because it is so polarized, makes it almost impossible for them to do that. So it's the boy, the trial, and the aftermath.
in three separate plays. If you see one, then you're going to want to see the next one, and then you're going to want to see the next one. Uh, you can also see them in different order, and you can also see them over the course of the run. So there are many different ways to kind of experience the saga. I kind of wonder, were you able to talk with the family about the play? I went on a quest to to find out who he was and uh, to build a character and then build build this series of plays around that idea. So in the course of doing that, I talked to um, his cousins, Wheeler Parker and Simeon Wright. Uh, his, Simeon was younger, but is actually his uncle. Uh, they were with Emmett on that fateful last week of his life. And I spoke with his Sunday schoolmates, uh, Mr. Goodwin, and I spoke with a number of his classmates and playground mates from a grammar school, which is now named after him. I spoke with a number of people in Mississippi from the respective towns of Money and Glendora, where the the two half-brothers lived. I sent away through the Freedom Information Act to uh, see what might be available uh, in the FBI file. Uh, I was curious to find out what was in in the files from, you know, prior years from 1955. And uh, I got a call about 8 o'clock in the morning. It turned out this was an officer. um, uh, I'm trying to remember her name now. um, Juanita Atkins, who was a younger sister of one of Emmett's classmates and she knew him from the playground and she had a crush on him from the playground and through her I met seven or eight more classmates and so it was you know quite an adventure kind of discovering who Emmett was through his peers that's really where I wanted to you know start my research and um one of the most remarkable interviews I had was with uh, a woman named Heloise Aldridge, uh, who in her youth was Heloise Woods. And uh, she had kept a letter that Emmett wrote her uh, in 1955, just before he left for Mississippi. And it's a remarkable artifact. And I was able to create this wonderful scene of uh, Emmett's uh, first flirtation with a girl. So I got information from the most, the oddest of places, if you will. Um, and uh, everyone was most generous in in sharing what was a really, really difficult story for all of them. As we move toward the conclusion of today's program, we want to share with you these remembrances. Bernard Shaw, who served as CNN's chief anchor for 20 years, died on Wednesday from pneumonia. He was 82. Bernard Shaw was one of the first black anchors of a network evening news program, and he guided viewers through many historic events, such as the assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan, the Jonestown Massacre, and pro-democracy demonstrations in Tiananmen Square. His coverage from Baghdad during the Persian Gulf War 
helped elevate CNN to global prominence. Quote, he literally helped put CNN on the map by being on the scene in the Gulf War, close quote, said PBS's NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff, a former colleague of Mr. Shaw's at CNN, where they co-hosted the show Inside Politics. The National Association of Black Journalists honored Shaw with a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2007. In his acceptance speech, Shaw made an impassioned plea for the news media's mostly white power brokers to seek out diverse viewpoints. Journalists, hear me tonight. There are some owners in our business, some bosses, parent companies, whose profit fixation and staffing directives and decisions sabotage the public good they profess to serve. They are turning the people's right to know into the people's fight to know. Beyond this ballroom tonight, white males wake up. Wake up. Globally, you are an island speck in an ocean of color. The reins of power will weaken and so will your grip if you do not faithfully and fulsomely support our nation's greatest strength, diversity. If you do not share, you will lose. Diversity. Diversity is not racial, ethnic, or gender encroachment. Diversity is our national survival. To you caught in the middle, stay vigilant. You must stay strong. You must carry on. If not you, who? To you, starting careers, embrace risk, mold change, making it work for you. Better to walk the plank of change than regret steps not taken. Work hard at working hard. And finally, to you, I say this, never, never fear truth but be afraid of missing it. That was pioneering journalist Bernard Shaw. He died last Wednesday at the age of 82. Today we also remember the author and political activist Barbara Ehrenreich, who died of breast cancer Thursday at the age of 81 
after a career exposing inequality and the struggles of regular people in the United States. In what is likely her most well-known book, Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America, Erin Reich tells the story of life in low-wage America as she tries to earn a living herself, working as a waitress, hotel maid, nursing home aide, and Walmart associate. In a later book, Barbara Ehrenreich takes on what she calls the destructive power of the positive thinking movement in the United States. This is Barbara Ehrenreich talking with Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman and Sharif Abdel Kodis in 2009. Barbara Ehrenreich opens the book by writing about her own experience with breast cancer culture after being diagnosed with breast cancer in 2000. She says in the prevailing positive thinking culture of America, breast cancer patients are urged to avoid feeling angry, instead find meaning and even uplift in breast cancer. She writes, in the most extreme characterization, breast cancer is not a problem at all, not even an annoyance. It's a gift deserving of the most heartfelt gratitude. Well, in Bright Sighted, Barbara Ehrenreich goes on to document what she says is the destructive power of the positive thinking movement in the United States, from breast cancer to the workplace to the economy to politics as a whole. Barbara Ehrenreich joins us now in our Firehouse studio. Uh, welcome to Democracy Now! It's oh, great to have you with us. With um, talk about your experience with breast cancer. Talk about, well, just how you begin the book, uh, mm -hmm. Getting Diagnosed. Okay. This book could be called, you know, What I Learned uh, from Breast Cancer That Helped Me Understand the Financial Meltdown. Um, but I was diagnosed about eight years ago. And I uh, started reaching out, as you would do naturally, to, uh, to find support and information on the web and all, the, all that sort of thing. What I found was very different. Uh, what I, I found was uh, constant exhortations to be positive, to be cheerful, to even embrace the disease as if it were a gift. Uh, you know, if that's your idea of a gift, take me off your Christmas list is my feeling. And... This this puzzled me, uh, but it went along with the idea that you would not get better unless you mobilized all these positive uh, thoughts uh, all the time, um, which, by the way, I'm... I'm happy to tell you, there's nothing to that. You're there, I mean, there's been sufficient scientific research now that we know that your mood does not, you know, dictate whether you will get better or not. But you know, imagine the burden that is on somebody who's already um, suffering from a very serious disease. And then, in addition, they have to worry about constantly working on their mood, you know, like a second illness. So... Talk about the research. I think that's going to surprise people, what you just said. I mean, you years ago, you were in biology. You were at Rockefeller University. Oh, yeah. No, I, I um, here, and here it finally came in useful, um, that there, I think there's a, a widespread um, idea. It, it sounds so uh, familiar that, you know, you would, you know, just let it go right by you, which is that um, your immune system will be boosted if you think, are thinking positively. Well, there's not a whole lot to that. There's not a whole lot to support that. And furthermore, more to the point here, uh, it's not clear that the immune system has anything to do with recovery from cancer or with whether you get it in the first place. Now, I, I had kind of, I guess, because I kind of accepted those things too. But 
That is the ideology, though, that you find in so many area, other areas of American life, too, that if you, you can control things with your mind, if you just have the right thoughts and attitudes, there is nothing in the material world that's causing your problem. It's all within you. And how did this ideology, this positive thinking movement, become so pervasive in American society? You document its rise in the culture. Yeah, well, I go back to the 19th century because um, I'm always interested in, in history. But it really began to take off in a very big way uh, in about the 80s and 90s uh, because the corporate world got very interested into it, in it, got interested in it during the age of downsizing. Because it was a, a way to say to the person who was losing his or her job, just as you would say to the breast cancer patient, you, this is in your mind. You know, you can overcome this. If you, if something bad has happened to you, that must mean you have a bad attitude. And now, if you want everything to be all right, just focus your thoughts in this new positive way, uh, and it'll be okay. I can't tell you how many times I have read uh, people who've lost their jobs in, the, in this recession uh, in the newspaper saying, but I'm trying so hard to be positive. Well, maybe there's no reason to be positive. Maybe you should be angry, you know? I mean, there is a place for that in the world. Stepping back for a minute on breast cancer, you make comparisons of breast cancer to prostate cancer and how um, women are expected to deal. You talk about the pink ribbons, the teddy bears, and how men deal. Yeah, I had I had real trouble with the pink teddy bears. That's uh, <laughs> the, one of the first things I ran into when I, I, at the time of my diagnosis and as an ad for one of these things, a pink breast cancer teddy bear. Now, that is not how I was feeling. And then um, there's, the foundation was giving out um, these sort of nice tote bags to women who came in for treatment in New York City, I think. And the, uh, I got hold of one of these tote bags, so I wasn't getting treated here. And inside were all these little, you know, cosmetic things and moisturizers and um, cheap jewelry and a box of crayons. So I called the foundation. I said, this is really nice, but what's with the crayons? And this woman said to me, well, that's in case you want to write down any of your thoughts. And I said, I'm a writer. I don't use crayons. You know, it was so infantilizing. Uh, and, and, you know, it's as if, you know, when a, if, a, if a man were to get prostate cancer, we gave him a little matchbook box to call a matchbook car to play with. You know, it... Um, I found this very offensive and upsetting. And what kind of response did you meet with when you went online, went to the listservs? Well, at that time, um, when I, I went online and I, I tried going on the Komen Foundation, that's a big breast cancer foundation, uh, Liz, uh, message board, and I, I did a little entry under the subject line, angry. And I talked about health insurance problems I was having. I was talking about what is this disease, very briefly, but what is this disease? How come so many women have it and we don't know what causes it and we don't really have a cure? Um, and, then, um, and then I went on to mention, and what's with all the pink ribbons? You know, eh, doesn't sit right with me. And I got back um, messages from women, also breast cancer sufferers, saying things like, um, run, don't walk to the nearest therapist. You are not going to get better unless you change your attitude. So I felt very alone. But then um, 
I wrote about that experience. I, I mean, I wrote about the whole cancer experience and talked about my disgust at this positive thinking uh, culture that had taken over. And I've gotten wonderful responses. Basically, ah, thank God, someone said it. Well, so, some would argue, what's wrong with being optimistic? If it helps buoy your spirits, uh, doesn't, isn't that harmless in, in its own right? What would you say to them? I would say, uh, look at the last year. <laughs> look at the financial meltdown, for example. I think you know, there are many factors in that, you know, greed, all sorts of things. But one of the factors was this very widespread ideology of positive thinking. And it operated at the level of the ordinary uh, person who might want to get a mortgage, for example, and had always been turned down for a mortgage in the past, uh, but who was hearing from uh, his preacher, perhaps, um, one of his you know, prosperity gospel preachers, that you, God wants you to have that big house. And look, the Lord has blessed you with this amazing mortgage. You know, no money down, no proof of income, etc. But what was far more significant what was, is what was going on at the other end. Um, and this is, a, to me, one of the most fascinating things to research, is the change in the corporate culture in uh, the last 15 or so years as this positive thinking took over and began to replace more logical, analytical approaches to things focused on the bottom line. And the, uh, the idea had taken hold that we can do no wrong. Housing prices can never go down. The stock market can never go down. And because I think it's right, you know, it will be right, especially if you're the CEO and you're making uh, $20 million a year. And I think that it, was, it, was, it became like a mass delusion. That was journalist, activist, and author Barbara Ehrenreich speaking with Democracy Now! in 2009. Barbara Ehrenreich died last Thursday at the age of 81. You're listening to Monday Morning QB. I'm Chris Bengert-Drowns. This program marked its four-year anniversary over the weekend. Since early September 2018, we've brought you News with a Point of View, covering politics, culture, community organizing, war, and everything in between. Much is owed to WPFW staff and listeners for the continued success of this program. But no one is more deserving of praise than this program's founder, longtime WPFW News Director Askia Muhammad, who joined the ancestors in February. Askia led this news team with grace, wit, and conviction, and his contribution to the station and to D.C. at large is indelible. Periodically, Askia would offer commentaries on Monday Morning QB, exchanging the role of reporter for one that was part polemicist, part poet. In this commentary, first broadcast July 2019, Askia interrogates the question of national and personal identity, establishing his rightful place in the lineage of American radicals. Am I an American? Well, let me frame the question this way. Am I American enough? I can count back at least seven generations of my forebearers born in Mississippi, including an ancestor who fought for his own freedom and for the preservation of the Union with the U.S. colored troops in the Civil War. Is that American enough? 
Donald J. Trump's mother is an immigrant. Both his father's parents were immigrants. Two of Trump's three wives are immigrants. How American is that? Me, I attended U.S. Naval Officer Candidate School. I served for six years in the Navy Reserve, receiving an honorable discharge as a petty officer third class in 1969. Same year that Donald was diagnosed with fake bone spurs. He got a military medical exemption and never served a day in uniform. Which one of us is American enough? Now I'll tell you, though, if being an American means having to swallow all that swill that comes out of the mouths of Trump and Mitch McConnell or even Chuck Schumer, then you can count me out. Americans are so smug and full of delusions of exceptionalism and manifest destiny related to their whiteness that they are largely incapable of realizing that the true history of this country is littered with week-by-week, month-by-month, decade-by-decade accounts of cruelty and wickedness, slavery, suffering, and death, and that such evil behavior comes with its own karma, its own reckoning. And since I've clearly been a recipient of American race hate rather than the benefits of the white empire, then now that the payback is coming due, don't look at me and say, all hands on deck. Am I an American? Would I be three-fifths of an American? Am I a Dred Scott American with no rights a white man is bound to respect? Am I a separate but equal American? Am I a Trayvon Martin American or maybe an Eric Garner American? No, I'm a David Walker American, a Nat Turner American, a noble Drew Ali American, a Paul Robeson American, a Malcolm X American, a Jeremiah Wright American, a Colin Kaepernick American, an Ilhan Omar American. No compromise, no sellout.
And that's our show for today. Support Monday Morning QB by visiting WPFWDC.org and becoming a monthly sustainer. Thanks to our engineer, Michael Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Continue to rest gracefully, Eskia. Again, please visit WPFWDC.org donate and become a sustainer of this great radio station. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington. 